Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-side. Welcome back to another B-side. I'm Tom here, and today we're going to be looking at this idea of the objective correlative. This is something that was mentioned or I mentioned it rather, in the film Afterlife, in our conversation there. And I think I either didn't explain the term clearly or possibly even misused it. And so what I want to do today is go through that term itself, the term objective correlative, and see how that makes sense, the history of that term, and possibly if it is a good way to help define some things in the film Afterlife. All right, so let's get into it. So in in the film Afterlife, there is one character, uh, Takashi, a young man who died in the Second World War, and he's been working at this sort of, um, what we described in the podcast as a DMV to the Afterlife this building where people who have died go, they have to describe one memory, which is reenacted and recorded, and that single memory is what they can take with them into the afterlife. It's the only thing about their life which they take. The people who work there fail to capture a memory. So people like uh, Takashi, and Siori and the other people who work there have not selected a memory to take with them. Therefore, they're kind of trapped in this place working for this this DMV thing. In the building where they sleep at night, the DMV people, as we're calling them, um, there's a little opening in the hallway, in the ceiling, which allows you to look up. And Takashi, before he goes to bed at night, sometimes looks up at the moon. And... In the podcast, I had said the moon was an objective correlative, the the T.S. Eliot term that we're going to explore today, for this sort of feeling of sorrow and sadness. And I think I even specifically said it was not a symbol, that it didn't symbolize these things, that it was an objective correlative that captured this sense of sadness. And I want to go through that term in order to see if I was right, because I really wasn't sure when actually doing the podcast. I sort of said, made the comment off the cuff. And so let's start with Mr. Eliot himself. Um, And so we know that T.S. Eliot was a poet and a critic, and he had gotten his PhD, I believe, from Harvard. Um, Spent most of, even though he was born in St. Louis, he spent most of his life in England. His most famous work being probably The Wasteland, um, but we also have like The Four Quartets, um, Hollow Men, Ash Wednesday, and a collection of poems that unfortunately inspired the movie Cats. So T.S. Eliot is, is, you know, at, at the center of the canon, maybe not quite at the center, but he is in the Western canon pretty firmly. He's also in there for his critical work as well. And his most famous term that 
that derived from his critical work is probably objective correlative. This term he initially used in an essay titled Hamlet and His Problems. He wrote this essay initially in 1919, and it was published in an essay collection, his first essay collection titled The Sacred Wood, Essays on Poetry and Criticism, published the following year in 1920. In this article, he is arguing that Hamlet is a artistic failure. And he's very famously arguing this. He's a young man at this point. I want to say he's in his early 30s. And he's trying to stake his position in the, the critical community. And so he's making this, this grand claim. He, he sort of cuts against it later in his career. But in this, this article, he's trying to make a, uh, a larger claim about Hamlet really in order to make some noise for himself. Um, and his argument is that the events of the play Hamlet don't justify Hamlet's internal problems, his internal sadness, his demonstration of melancholia. Um, and so let me read to you the passage in which the term objective correlative comes out, and we can see kind of the point of the passage. Quote, The only way of expressing emotion in the form of art is by finding an objective correlative. In other words, a set of objects, a situation, a chain of events, which shall be the formula of that particular emotion, such that when the external facts, which must terminate in sensory experience, are given the emotion is immediately invoked. If you examine any Shakespeare's most successful tragedies, you will find this exact equivalence. You will find that the state of mind of Lady Macbeth walking in her sleep has been communicated to you by a skillful accumulation of imagined sensory impressions. The words of Macbeth on hearing of his wife's death strike us as if, given the sequence of events, these words were automatically released by the last event in the series. The artistic inevitability lies in this complete adequacy of the external to the emotion. And this is precisely what is deficient in Hamlet. Hamlet, the man, is dominated by an emotion which is inexpressible because it is in excess of the facts as they appear. End quote. Okay, so you could see his, his argument in summation, right? That, um, that we don't see what Hamlet sees, basically. We don't understand why Hamlet's so damn angry, sad, whatever, because um, we're not given the kind of string of events. We don't see the string of events that would justify it the way we do in Macbeth. Okay, so we get that term objective correlative, which... I'll, I'll repeat some of the quote again in order to isolate that definition. A set of objects, a situation, a chain of events, which shall be the formula of that particular emotion, such that when the external facts which must terminate in sensory experience are given, the emotion is immediately evoked. So let's take a, a look at an example of when this happens. I think a great example of the objective correlative uh, comes from this website, peninherhand.com. I don't know anything about this website. I just found this example, and I thought it would be interesting to share. And the person who wrote this 
gives Cinderella's shoe as a, a great example of the objective correlative. Uh, and so we see the shoe, according to this author, uh, represents escape and equilibrium. Um, she keeps on walking, Cinderella keeps on walking until she finds her rightful place in the world. And so you have, um, the shoe also captures the emotion of the chain of events that, that Cinderella goes through. So she goes through desire, loss, hope, and eventually joy when, you know, it's revealed that her foot fits in the glass slipper and she and the prince get back together. And so the glass slipper becomes the objective correlative of those emotions of desire, joy, loss. And we see them all collected together in a chain of events that becomes um, kind of representative of the emotions in that story. All right, so now let's take a look at the, the history of this term objective correlative and where it, it interacts in history. The term was first used by the American romantic painter Washington Alston. He first used it in uh, 1840, so um, even before good old T.S. was born. And Alston's paintings are very, very interesting. He was known in his time as the American Titian because uh, he had this, this what was called like a Venetian Renaissance style. I'm, I'm not deft enough on artistic styles to, to confirm or deny that. Um, but they ha his paintings uh, embrace these kind of large, open, romantic landscapes. Um, and... Alston first used the term um, objective correlative in a lecture on art and poetry. Um, he's drawing from this kind of Coleridgean vocabulary. So that's uh, William Coleridge, the, the painter. Um, excuse me, <laughs> Samuel Coleridge, the painter. I'm confusing Samuel and William Wordsworth. Um, so he's drawing from um, Samuel Coleridge, the, the poet, and he introduces the term with an analogy between art and nature. And so this is from his 1840 lecture. Quote, So too is the external world to the mind, which needs also, as the condition of its manifestation, its objective correlative. Hence, the presence of some outward object predetermined to correspond to the existing idea in its living power is essential to the evolution of its proper end, the pleasurable emotion. Uh, he calls this, end quote, he calls this um, simply the occasion or condition and not per se the cause. Right. So the cause of the, the kind of the emotion um, is a kind of universal living power. And this is very romantic, right? That there's this kind of underlining universal vitality to the world that, that these romantic poets, writers, artists have insight to. And this inspires them. Um, but it is also the cause of the kind of emotional response the audience has to this work. So it... Alston is arguing, and this is uh, published posthumously in a book titled Lectures on Art and Poems, is a, a sort of Neoplatonist view of things. 
And what he, he uses the term ideas. Ideas, and this is quoting from the essay, quote, are the highest or most perfect form in which anything may exist in the mind. All right, this connects to, to Neoplatonism, as you can imagine, because Plato postulates that there's these forms that aren't in the kind of material reality you and I are experiencing, but are just sort of out there in the ether. Uh, here, it's not forms, it's ideas, but they also exist in the mind of people. And so Alston's argument um, reveals this to be true, right? Or, or he's taking this to be true. It's a take in that there's a, these ideas. Objects become conscious to the mind in the form of ideas. And so when you see an object, you have this most perfect form of anything in the mind. So... Um, you imagine the the ideal of air conditioners. I'm looking at my air conditioner now. It's, it's summer here. And, uh, you know, you look at the air conditioner, and you imagine the kind of most perfect form of the air conditioner, and then you can comprehend your own air conditioner consequently. I would say I'm not entirely sure what perfect means here. Um, in a kind of a Neoplatonist term, I think perfect would probably mean... Um, the picture that everyone has of air conditioners, right? So kind of a separate ideal of air conditioner that people can can share. Um, and so since I have that in my mind, I can look at different air conditioners, regardless of how much they differ from being in perfect form and still comprehend or understand them. And so objects become conscious to the mind in this way as ideas. Um, and either they do that in order to help manifest reality so we can see objects, we can interact with reality, and that's why the mind is doing that, so it can interact with reality, um, or they do it um, as a, a reflection of our mental constitution. So because our mind is made up in a certain way, it creates objects or makes objects available to the conscious mind, so to speak. Um, therefore, the external world is apparent to the mind because of the mind's objective correlative, right? The mind is predetermined to be cognizant of, of the objective realities out there um, because it has built into it these ideas. And so these ideas, which are kind of also in this Emersonian, are filled with this Emersonian vitality and, and kind of like um, like divine life that, that fills all things, right? Ideas are sort of filled with this living power as well, but the, the objective reality um, can become apparent to us by virtue of having these ideas. So the world is able to exist for us because of the mind's objective correlative. And so this helps join together two strings in philosophy. Transcendentalism, which I'll cover second, and uh, Kantian categories of the mind, which I'll cover first. And so Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher who worked in 
ethics, in, in metaphysics. He, was, he covered a great deal of territory. In one of his initial great works, The Critique of Pure Reason, um, Kant discusses this idea of categories, somewhat inherited from Aristotle, um, but certainly his own. And for Kant, we cannot know something in itself. We're not able to make any kind of intrinsic divisions between different things um, in themselves. And so what does this mean? For example, we'll go back to my air conditioner, um, my famous air conditioner. We can say, I know the air conditioner. It is um, so heavy. It is, I don't know, 18 inches long, um, 12 inches high. It plugs into the wall, etc. It's brown. Um, what Kant would say was, mm, well, you know its height and length, but you don't know it in itself. That's kind of um, that's kind of a an external category of the object. The object has a, a thingness in itself that is independent of height, length, its function, etc. And what you're seeing is appearance, right? The, whatever lies behind the appearance, whatever is of the air conditioner that generates its appearance, you don't have access to. That you're just looking at these different qualities of the object. Um, and, and Kant is suspicious that I think we that we can discover the essential categories. Oh, excuse me. That we can discover the the essentialness of the object. However. Kant would say, and he says this in Critique of Pure Reason, um, which was published, I want to say, either the 1780s or 1790s. I, I honestly don't remember. But what Kant is saying is that there's these categories that are pre-existent in the mind that allows us to look at the object and put the object into our own psyche via these categories, and so he outlines, to start with these categories, what are called four judgments. A judgment or an objective empirical judgment um, allows us to refer to objects in their, rather than um, a, a subjective connection with sense impression. So this would be an objective way of referencing objects. And... Taking from Aristotle, Kant outlines uh, four respects, four things which we can classify any judgment. Quantity, quality, relation, and modality. So in each of these respects, um, these are, are moments of judgment, right? That, that's what he would call them. Ways of looking at something and judging it to be what it is in an objective sense, not judging it like if it's a good air conditioner or bad, but judging that it has um, it has size, weight, etc. And so judgments can be universal, um, particular, or singular. That is um, the example from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, a great resource. I would recommend this to anyone, is... A universal judgment would be all swans are white. A particular judgment would be some swans are white. A singular judgment would be that swan is white. Fred the swan is white. And so using these three categories, um, 
universal, particular, singular, and these four larger classifications, quantity, quality, relation, modality, um, we end up getting, at the intersection of these things, uh, 12 pure concepts of the understanding under quantity, unity, plurality, totality, under quality, reality, negation, limitation, under relation, we have inherence and subsistence, uh, causality and dependence, and then lastly, community or reciprocity, as it's sometimes called. And then under modality, we get possibility, existence, necessity. That is kind of the, the Kantian element of it, which is anti-Lockean, right? If we think of, of John Locke, the late 17th century philosopher, um, he had the, the famous idea of the tabla rasa, right, which is the, the blank slate. We come into the world knowing nothing, and we just are sort of impressed on with, with all of the sense that we encounter when in the world. Um, Kant is the opposite of Locke. Kant is saying, we have these categories of the mind that I just mentioned, and we use those to understand objects in the world. Alston is drawing from Kant here in order to say that we, we understand objects through some sort of mental processes, through these kind of ideas in the mind. But Alston is also drawing on the American transcendental experience and, and history of thought by saying that all of this stuff, the world and the mind, the, the communication between objects and mental state, all of it is kind of within the divine. So there's sort of, we're all kind of like dipped in, in the divine, in, in God's stuff. And so the thing we share with the object, which in part allows us to, to understand it and not be fully divided or completely divided or permanently divided from the object, is our shared divinity so to speak, if I'm understanding the, the transcendentalism correctly. So Eliot's version of the objective correlative is obviously here much simpler. It, it's restrained to an artistic experience, and really what he wants is the correspondence of the mental state with outside phenomena, so that if um, Hamlet's really sad, things, objects in the world should be making him really sad. He can't just be bluesy for the sake of being bluesy. Now, for the next section, and uh, I'll let you know some of this information I did get from this article, I'd like to turn to the article by Dominic Griffiths, uh, titled T.S. Eliot and Others. In this, this article, um, Griffiths is making various connections between Eliot's concept of the objective correlative and these others, and he moves into work by uh, someone named Francis Herbert Bradley, whose years I'll give you are 1846 to 1924. And Bradley's important. Um, he was a, a, a critic working in the German idealist tradition, and he was also the subject of T.S. Eliot's PhD thesis. And it's uh, Bradley was a huge influence on how he thought, how Eliot thought, especially his 1914 book, 
essays on truth and reality. And so let's take a look at uh, something Griffith's quotes from Bradley's work, and I will quote it in full now in order to see how this affects this idea of the um, objective correlative. Quote, any emotion, one part of that emotion, consists already of objects, of perceptions and ideas before my mind. And the whole emotion, being one, the special group of feeling is united with these objects before my mind, united with them internally and directly. These are features in feeling which already, in a sense, belong to and are one with their object, since the emotion contains and unites both its aspects. Okay, end quote. So that is, uh, that you could see there, right? That, um, that there's a little bit of that kind of transcendental thing, but also um, that emotion, the feeling, unites person and object, mind and object. And if you think of that in terms of the objective correlative, there are the, these great similarities. Griffiths points these out. He says that um, Bradley is concerned with individual experience of ideas, those kind of mental things, right? Those things in, in your mind. Um, Griffiths is, is, or excuse me, Bradley is more interested in the individual's experience of those. Um, Eliot is more interested in how artists convey ideas. So the philosopher is interested in how people know. Um, the artist is interested in how people convey. And getting back to, to Bradley again, here's more from Bradley. Quote, When a felt emotion is described, a man may feel that the description agrees or does not agree with an actual fact of which he is aware. And it is largely or mainly because these suggestions are felt to be in unison or discord with something already felt at this present that they are accepted or rejected. End quote. So, here we go again. Here's like um, artistic verisimilitude is based on the correctness or rightness of a, an emotion, right? That um, that if the emotion, if the um, the description is in unison with the felt emotion, um, then it is accepted. What Eliot does in his in his work, taking from Bradley is that Eliot claims, and this is, this is quoting from Eliot's book, Knowledge and Experience, Eliot claims, quote, emotion is really part of the object and ultimately just as objective, end quote. So as uh, Griffiths points out, emotional experiences, they're not pure abstractions, they're physical. They're physically connected to things. And so now if we round this out and bring this back to afterlife, then we might think of this film as being something transcendental or having this kind of uh, transcendental aspect to it, especially in the use of the moon. What I would say is that uh, Takashi, our character, is um, he was killed, as I said before, in World War II. And part of the plot, if you remember from our our initial 
viewing of the film on Talking Pictures trivia is that uh, Takashi was engaged to someone, but he dies in World War II, so he doesn't marry her. He then later, years and years later, still working in this, this afterlife DMV, meets the man who did marry her. And he also discovers, after she dies, the memory that she, his fiance, took with him was the memory of the two of them sitting on a park bench before he was to leave for World War II. And so once he, he realizes that he's had an effect on someone, then he is, um, he's willing to move on. He's willing to move on to, to the next world, to the next reality. Now, we do see him uh, going back and forth, as I said before, looking at the moon. When he's moving on to the next reality, we see Siori, uh, a young female member of this clique, who she passes underneath the moon, and when she does, someone takes away a tile. And what you learn is apparently the moon is painted, it's not really the moon, but painted on this tile, and then the the person, whoever, is, is taking the tile away. Someone on the, the roof takes the tile away for whatever reason, to clean or, or whatever. Um, and even though we know that the moon was probably real, because I think at one point we saw kind of snow falling down that opening, um, at the end of the film, the object of the moon, whether it's real or whether it's this thing captured on wood, um, or on material, maybe it's not wood, that the moon is pure object um, and that it is a place where Takashi's uh, kind of emotional longing, his despair, his inability to see himself as having meaning in someone's, in someone's life, in someone else's life, that is all deposited into this physical thing. And not only is it deposited in this physical thing, when he learns he actually did have a profound effect on this one person's life, this, this woman who he was engaged to at one point, you're able to take the tile away. The film literally moves the moon, grabs the moon as a physical object, rips it off, and takes it away because it, uh, his emotion, which was physicalized, is no longer there. And he... Takashi has moved on to the next life. He's, he's chosen a memory and vanished into the next world. The emotional qualities of someone really do, as T.S. Eliot says, cohere in objects in our film Afterlife. Um, and the artist, the director, can arrange these objects properly. The article writer, Dominic Griffiths, and as well as... Uh, a variety of people who we've quoted today, Alston being most prominently, most prominent rather, would say that there is the this universality that underlines things, whether it is these universal ideas, whether it is this kind of transcendental divine presence, substance, whatever, um, that these would underline everything. Now, the question I have, the open question I have is that I wonder if that's true in this film, Afterlife. I wonder if the director sees a kind of universal substance 
connecting all things together. It is a metaphysical film. It is a film about dying and transcending on, and it it supposes an afterlife. It supposes a metaphysical reality beyond the physical world. Um, but I don't know how universal objects would work in this world. But I do think, and my conclusion, I'll, I'll come to it now, is that with the moon in that world, emotions register as objects. And I think this is especially true when you realize or reflect on the fact that the plot is about creating physical memories, actually filming, shooting, recreating the memories people have so that there is a physical copy, let's say, of that memory. It's not the original memory. It's the memory the, the people who have died recreate with the staff. Um, but it is a, a physical thing and that these important emotions they have are registered in the physical retelling of a, a time in their life. All right, and that will be it for today. Thank you for joining us, and I'll see you on the next B-Side.